The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, quit surfing 8maidsofmilking.com and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 405 with guests Anthony Cangiolosi and Rico Mariani, recorded live Tuesday, December 16th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who'll never roast his chestnuts by an open fire, again, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is your host, Carl Franklin. I'm in New London, Connecticut. And Richard Campbell will be here in just a minute. He's in Vancouver, British Columbia. We don't have any mail or anything else like that today. I just wanted to say, hope you're having a, a happy holiday season and uh, enjoying your friends and your family and uh, some good food, some good drink, and hope you're taking it easy a little bit and relaxing a little more than usual. Lord knows we all need to relax a little more. Uh, just to catch you up on what I've been doing personally, um, Cyrus Chestnut, who is a jazz pianist, you might know him from the remake of the Vince Guaraldi Charlie Brown music. He did the famous Charlie Brown Christmas album in the year 2000, jazz piano player. He played at the Guard Theater, which is right across the street from the studio, uh, last week. And I took my brother over there to see him. Well, we ended up at Hannafin's uh, Irish Pub crossed the street afterwards and he was t saying that he'd like to see the studio and maybe do an interview and and uh, maybe even record a live album so we did we recorded his first live album at uh, live at the guard theater on saturday my guys my crew and i went over there we did a great job we even brought the video cameras and we got a two camera shoot on him so we're in the process of producing this incredible uh, cd of the cyrus chestnut trio uh, Google him, and you'll you'll see for yourself who I'm talking about. More on that story later. Now let's get to the interview that we recorded previously. Our guests today are Anthony Cangelosi and Rico Mariani. Uh, Anthony is a program manager on the Visual Studio ecosystem team. Uh, 
As the partner program manager, Anthony serves as a technical representative for the Visual Studio Industry Partner, or VSIP, program and works on a variety of projects that support their work in the Visual Studio ecosystem. Anthony holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science, Master's in Business Administration, and six years of experience at Microsoft. During his time, Anthony has worked on a variety of teams in Visual Studio and has helped ship managed device and development in Studio 2003, native device development in Studio 2005, the VS 2005 extensions for WPF and WCF, VS 2005 and 2008 SDKs, and most recently has worked on delivering the Visual Studio Gallery. So, Anthony, you're pretty much an apprentice, right? Uh, pretty much, yeah, yes. Okay. Uh, just, just learning the ecosystem overall and doing my best to uh, just cutting your teeth. put it out there in front of everybody. Yeah, just a newbie. <laughs> just a newbie, at least compared to uh, the other folks we have on the line. <laughs> Okay, Rico Mariani began his career at Microsoft in 1988, working on another newbie. <laughs> working on language products beginning with Microsoft C version 6 and contributed there until the release of Microsoft Visual C++ version 5.0 development system. In 1995, Rico became development manager for what was to become the Sidewalk Project, which started his seven years of platform work on various MSN technologies. In the summer of 2002, Rico returned to the developer division as a performance architect on the CLR team. His performance work led to his most recent assignment as chief architect of Visual Studio. Rico's interests include compilers and language theory, databases, 3D art, and good fiction. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us. Wow, we're... Uh... We're in the presence of greatness here, Richard. We are uh, some serious old school Microsoft folks, I think. Absolutely. Well, it's an honor to have you on the show. An honor to be here. Thank you. It's our pleasure to be here. Thank you. So we're talking, well, we hear the phrase VSX all the time, but what is VSX really? Is it Visual yeah. Studio 10? <laughs> no, no. Well, actually, that's a, that's a good thought. <laughs> it is. Yeah, actually. You hadn't really thought of it that way before. VS 10. Um no, VSX is, is um, the, about Visual Studio extensibility, and um, it's uh, a better uh, bundling up of a variety of, of programs that we used to offer before that were much more confusing. But I, I think I should let Anthony take this. This is, this is squarely in Anthony's area. Sure. Uh, yeah, as, as Rico mentioned, it's the, the larger umbrella uh, that we talk about when we're talking about all the platform aspects about Visual Studio. Um, it gives us one place to talk about the technologies that are needed for extending Visual Studio, as well as the different ways that partners and companies and consumers can uh, interact with Visual Studio when we're talking about um, extending it. So it, it embraces our broader community ecosystem of uh, general enthusiasts and hobbyist developers that are extending Visual Studio, as well as the partner-related specific VSIP program or Visual Studio industry program for ISVs and other commercial vendors building products on top of Visual Studio. And that's what I was just thinking. Visual Studio is already extensible. Lots of people have added stuff to Visual Studio, including Microsoft. What's, why do you, did you change the name or is there something new here? So actually, it's a, it's a dirty little secret that Visual Studio has been extensible for, you know, maybe 10 years or more now. Uh, we've had large 
large-scale customers and partners who've been building products that integrate into Visual Studio for as far back as you know early 2000 and before. Um, in the last few years, though, what we've done is we've opened up that model to allow the broader community of developers to build into Visual Studio and extend on it on their own without necessarily having to be a close partner or in a close relationship with Microsoft. It's something now that any developer who has a licensed copy of Visual Studio could extend and integrate on top of a variety of the different features that are extensible in the product itself. There's more to it than that even. I mean, I've been, as an architect, one of my big initiatives is to make the product more extensible. And as I'm fond of saying, you know, how could I how could I stand here and say I need to make it more extensible when the whole thing is extensions? I mean, if you just literally ran the core core of Visual Studio, I think you'd get an empty frame window with a file exit menu. So it's, it's all <laughs> extensions. And yet I say, oh, it needs to be more extensible. Well, what we mean by that is that um, it's been extensible at the core from the outset, and then we've had, uh, as Anthony mentioned, you know, an increasing number of programs to expose that to more and more people. But a lot of times people don't want to extend the core. What they want to do is they want to extend the extensions. And there it's more hit and miss. Some extensions have an excellent extensibility model themselves, and so you can get that second level of extensibility or the third level of extensibility, but others not so much. So um, in order for people to really feel like Visual Studio, what we ship, is extensible, we have to make it so that the core is extensible and the extensions are extensible. And so we're doing a variety of things to um, to make that be more the case, a lot of them having to do with how we built the product fundamentally. So, um, so yeah, extensibility is a big deal for us, are you uh, using... both in terms of how we position it and, and in terms of what technology we put in. Are you going to use MEF for the next version? Yeah, MEF is our our um, the managed extensibility framework, and Visual Studio is kind of like the premier customer of that. In fact, a lot of the people who started off the MEF effort, maybe half, um, were like formal Visual Studio people working on the tooling side, and you know they went to help with the extensibility kinds of side, and then they met with a bunch of people on the framework side, and together, you know, they're <laughs> Together, they're making this general-purpose extensibility framework. But yeah. um, Visual Studio has had a lot of experience around, you know, what um, what the needs are uh, for a flagship application that wants to do sort of this pluggability model. And um, our general direction is more and more managed code, and we have an extensibility framework on the unmanaged side, um, you know, that's around COM. And so we wanted to do something that would let us do this uh, in a more sort of um, granular, sm- smaller granules, though, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in a more fine-grained kind of way to let people plug into various different interfaces without having to write a whole lot of it all and um, without having to write anything as, as complicated as uh, a Visual Studio package. So um, the new project system, for instance, is MEF extensible. The new editor is MEF extensible, and we'll be adding MEF extensibility, you know, pretty much in every new area as as our premier way of getting that managed extensibility. Now, on the other hand, it's it's a big product. It's like 45 million lines of code, and so the idea that we would just go and like in one release sort of rewrite everything to be MEF extensible, well, that's you know we could possibly write. So um, we're on a multi-year plan to remodel the product and kind of go through the areas in in a sensible kind of way and introduce the extensibility we want in the places it makes the most sense and where we need it the most the soonest and then kind of, you know, over time replace all those pieces, you know. And so that's that's generally uh, the extensibility story. 
I find this an interesting challenge because we I definitely think we're think, talking about three different technologies within Microsoft that ultimately lead to this product, MEF being one thing. Uh, the Visual Studio product, Visual Studio 10, which is a, the thing you'll ultimately sell because is, is a, uh, uses MEF or will use MEF, but the Visual Studio extensibility, is this really the, the mantra around just the you guys build the shell that the guys who ultimately build the product will work on? Well, in, in fact, that's that's really the case. I mean, we would like it if um, our relationship with internal teams was very much like the relationship we have with outside partners, where we were delivering them a core platform technology and so forth, and they were building on it at a different at their own cadences. I mean, part of the problem we have today is that um, new platform technologies are coming out all the time, and um, like for instance, there's there's the XNA framework from from. Uh, you know, the Xbox teams where, you know, they, right. they have this whole game programming environment, right? It's, it's a great environment. And we don't want them to have to come to us, you know, begging for a cup of tooling um, every time they want to do a new release. We would like it to be the case that they can pick up the latest VSX bits the same way that a partner would and deliver a high-quality framework. So both internally and externally, we'd like to create those opportunities. And that means having the right level of interfaces and the right separation. Now, in some cases, we're not there yet. And so the kinds of things that, that uh, some of our partners would want to do, they require changes in the core, and, you know, that's fine, and, and that's why we do Visual Studio releases, and, and we align them with platforms and so forth. And so I guess we're always going to have some amount of new stuff that, that becomes first available in the next Visual Studio. But we'd like people to have as much separation as they want from the cadence of Visual Studio and still be able to deliver their platform tooling, right? So... When a new framework comes out, we don't want them to necessarily have to wait for a Visual Studio release to deploy the framework bits or, or part of the framework bits or a new application model for the framework bits. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if they can do new versions of Silverlight and never have to call us, you know, because they just plug in like anybody else and they can do all the tooling that they would want. And, you know, that's something we'd, we'd really dearly love to be able to do to get maximum separation there. Because there's lots of people delivering platform pieces, and the theory being here then that third parties get are just as able to exactly. add in new features to Studio the same way that that Microsoft Teams do. Exactly, and and in fact, if our own partners are doing it that way, following the same rules with the same interfaces, that's how we know we've got a success, right? If we can do it and it meets our needs, then we know that our partners, you know, are very likely to be satisfied as well, and we have. You know, we have not no success there. I mean, we, we've we've done some tremendous things as just fairly modest service packs. You know, um, over the last years, you've seen it. Um, but suffice to say, there's more we'd like to do, um, and some teams are more satisfied than other teams. And and it's indicative of this. You know, what's really extensible? How much has to be done in the core pieces or in monolithic pieces, and how much is nicely teased apart? And you know, where would we like the fractures to be? And and so, well, we think there's opportunities for improvement there. I mean, you know, that's that's been a, that's been a big focus of of um, my sort of tenure here. How how much does a language plug in? Uh, it seems that the that a language is really sort of married to the IDE in a big way. Um, how it, how easy is it to 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 get a language in there? No, it, it, it actually, you'd be surprised how really? detached a language can be. I mean, the, the languages are, can be fairly independent. Um, you need to have a language service, you know, that's going to help you with 
um, with syntax coloring and parsing, and you know those can be plugged in. Um, you may be able to use an existing project system like flavoring the C sharp or VB project systems. A lot of people do that, you know, because their compilation is a lot like one of those. Um, you could use, um, you could leverage the new common project system, uh, which is even more general purpose. That's the one that we're using for uh, the C++ compile. So um, that's an opportunity. Or you could write your own project system entirely um, using the managed package framework um, set of add-ins that, that people have done. So that's what F-sharp did, for instance. And you could get a completely first-class um, language setup you know, with your own project system of the, of your own construction, uh, which may or may not use MS Build to do its build, but, you know, probably does, uh, but, you know, doesn't necessarily have to. Um, it has every piece of support you could want in the solution system, um, and it, you know, gives you syntax coloring, and you could have, you know, your compiler be launched and have dialogues for managing all that. I mean, all those things are completely injectable in, in a variety of ways. I think what we'd like, though, is for people to be able to inject new languages that are sort of somewhat similar to existing ones and have less work to do. You know what I mean? And Rico, it's probably, it's probably worth mentioning that uh, even today, as you mentioned, similar when you're using um, flavoring of projects that are similar to some of the .NET languages, you also get a relatively low-cost integration for exactly. debugger integration as well. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. And I, I completely glossed over the debugger. Um, but, see, here's the thing. And, and this is this is kind of an excellent example. Okay, sometimes some features, okay, like say click, click once deployment is one of my favorites. It's in some project systems and not in others. You know, so if you roll your own um, project system, then you might not get the click once deployment things because they're dependent on say the the C sharp project system. So if you're flavoring that, well maybe you do, but if you're not, then maybe you don't. So then you have to write that. And so you get these collateral features that you'd really love to have in your project system and have all project systems get them. But by virtue of the fact that the project systems are eclectic, you know, when someone does an add-in that provides click one support, they don't write it once and it works in all project systems. You know, and our move to get a more common MEF-based project system that we can use in more places, you know, helps with those sorts of things so that um, you don't just get, you know, a project system kind of, and that's all you get. Um, you also get other extensions. So remember I told you before that extensibility at that second and third level is, is a very important thing, you know, that, that we'd like to have and yeah. that we don't always have in places. Another thing that we'd like to have is this sort of ability to compose extensions so that um, you don't just extend the C-sharp project system or the VB project system. You can extend any project system kind of in the same way, and your extension can be somewhat agnostic. And that's just an example. But this composability of extensions is very important, and that's central to MEF as well. So you can see, I mean, we've, it's, it's not that we don't have extensibility. We do, and people do fantastic things with it. But there's still room for improvement there, and, you know, Visual, uh, Visual Studio 10 is going to take some steps in that direction. And on a long-term basis, we're going to continue to take more steps in that direction in more areas. How difficult is it, are you finding it, to move from your sort of, uh, your, your current approach of, of extensibility in Visual Studio to over to use math? I mean, well, is there actually, a lot of ripping out of code? 
Well, okay. In, in many cases, we're, we're replacing, you know, some legacy code that was written in C++ with managed code. So well, that's good. So, you know, well, that, it's pretty, that's pretty, you know, that's pretty much an overhaul, right? I mean, we're yep. completely redoing it. But in, in those cases, we're tending to opt into saying, you know what, we're going to rewrite that area because we'd like to, we think it's time. Some of these areas have been around for a while and it's, you know, it's an opportunity to make some improvements and some simplifications and learn from the past. So, so that's fine. In other areas, um, we're taking a much more incremental approach. So, really, your mileage may vary. You know, it's it's not there isn't one kind of uh, amount of of cost associated with conversion. It, it really depends on on the approach we choose to take in a particular area. It's a big product, you know, and so there is, there's certainly one size uh, does not fit all, even within our own product. Didn't somebody tell? I think I heard from some somebody somewhere said that there are parts of Visual Studio that are even in assembler. I don't know that there's any assembly. Well, I don't, no, I shouldn't say that. Okay, there, prob, there probably are because okay, it's it's 45 million lines of code, and uh, so let's think about this. Okay. Some of Visual Studio, and let's go with something modern, okay? So I'm sure I can find you some assembly in, in a fairly short period of time. Um, there's a profiler in the team SKU. Mm-hmm. The profiler needs a device driver. The device driver needs to read CPU registers. The only way to read a, read a CPU register is with, like, a wonky opcode that does exactly that. Right. And the only way to execute that opcode is to write some assembler, right? Okay. So it's certainly the case that there's some assembler in Visual Studio, um, but I don't think that it's it's uh, pervasive. Like I don't sure. think there's any significant amounts of it left. Just where, like you said, where there's the only that's yeah. The only way to do there's there's a few low level, very low level areas that you know go all the way down. But like if you looked around and found all the other cases, I think you'd find they were of similar ilk. Like. There's some areas where there's a particular set of functionality that's not really expressible, yeah. um, either effectively or, or at all, um, in any of the higher level languages we have available. And so we have to drop down to assembler, and then we kind of drop down to assembler, and then get out of assembler again as quickly as possible. Right. Um, you'd find the bulk of the code is is written in either C sharp or um, C plus plus, and um, those are probably neck and neck at this point. Rico, do you see more teams evolving towards the uh, managed code, either Visual Basic or C Sharp, for building uh, extensions to Visual Studio? And by teams, I mean internal teams, Microsoft's internal teams. Yeah, definitely that's the trend. Um, Internally as well as externally, people would rather write managed package extensions than unmanaged package extensions. Um, The the friction, well, I mean, the development environment's better. You know, you get the usual benefits. Um, Memory management's better. A lot of the problems that we've had um, in the unmanaged systems, you know, have to do with, okay, well, how do we do good memory management? What's our lifetime story? What kind of allocation strategy do we need here? Oh, of course, we need a custom one because no one can use the stuff directly. Um, the usual kinds of problems. Um, and, uh, you know, people have been living with those problems for forever, but we get additional productivity out of writing managed code, same as anybody else does. Um, and in, in many areas, that's really an, an excellent choice. Um, we have several you know, flagship designers that are, are managed code. I mean, the WinForms designer, the the the, uh, the WPF designer, for instance, the, those are significant pieces of code, and and they're, you know, managed code. Are any um, portions of Visual Studio written in VB.net? Are any written in VB? Um, I imagine that there are, um, because as I'm fond of saying, you know, all known software uh, technologies are used somewhere um, in Visual Studio. Um, but I'm it's hard for me to think of, 
anything that's large that's written in VB, but there's no reason why we couldn't. Um, the, the VB compilation system is just fine. I think it's, it's a question of happenstance that right. um, a lot of the people who were working on Visual Studio were C++ programmers, right. and so it's easier for them to switch to C-sharp than it is for them to switch to VB. As were most Microsoft programmers, I think. Yeah, and, and so in-house, I think we have a slant towards C-sharp that is probably not present in the rest of the industry. Uh, like, there's certainly no reason why any of the packages that we wrote in, in C-sharp couldn't have been written in VB. There, it would have been perfectly fine. There's, you know... Sure. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I can't... I mean, the fact that I can't think of one... Uh, I know that there are some examples of smaller packages that were written on the Visual Basic project system, or if not within within the Visual Basic team, they've contributed certain components that are built in Visual Basic, um, namely uh, Microsoft.VisualBasic.dll, the assembly that ships with the framework, okay. uh, is written in Visual Basic. Okay. So that's you know that's that's totally that's totally credible, um, and it would make a lot of sense too because the VB guys like to you know like to. Uh, try out their own system and deploy their own bits. It helps them to shake out any problems and make sure that they're, you know, everybody likes to dog food around here. Yeah. On the SDK side, that's actually one of the larger requests we had gotten in the last year was to provide more samples and more examples in Visual Basic. So um, yeah. I think, as you mentioned, Rico was very accurate that there is probably, there's definitely a slant inside our in Microsoft where we tend to lean a little more towards C-sharp but there's more balance in the industry where people are choosing based on their past experience. Well, and interesting enough, Microsoft seems to be a company largely made up of people who make operating systems and development tools, right. <laughs> which tends towards really C++ for the longest time. It's only recently yeah. now that you're going to try another language, and it gets C-sharp is somewhat closer to C++. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about what's uh, what other than extensibility is, is new in Visual Studio 10, or is it too early for that? Uh, there's there's lots of things we can talk about. Um, there's anything we talked about at, at PDC or at or at TechEd we could talk about in this interview. So uh, we could talk about the new editor. We could talk about the fact that we're using WPF pervasively. Yeah, uh, I've already touched on the new project system um, and you know some extensibility things. Uh, we could talk about multi-targeting and what we're doing there. Those are those are some of the biggest initiatives. Multi-targeting. You want to talk about multi-targeting? Sure. What's that? Well. Um, we have a new runtime in this version of the IDE, um, CLR4, and we would like to be able to build projects for it. That's, that sounds like a pretty reasonable thing to want to be able to do. But um, unlike previous versions of Visual Studio, we would also like to be able to have solutions that contain projects that target CLR2 uh, and uh, Framework 3.0 and Framework 3.5. And you may notice that I make a distinction between the CLR version and the framework version, right? Because framework 3.5 still had kind of the uh, the Whippy CLR underneath it, or it's not exactly the Whippy CLR; it's the servicing of it, but it's still a 2.0 CLR, if you will. Right. So in the past, we've delivered um, some multi-targeting features, but we had it a little bit easier um, because the CLR across the various different frameworks was common and and you know super compatible. Well, that isn't necessarily going to be the case in this version. I mean, we're going to have a compatible CLR, but it's going to be, you know, a different versioning. Um, and so there's a different set of tools for it. And so we have to be able to support solutions that are heterogeneous. Uh, now, in the past, we sort of shied away from this. And so when we moved from the Everett CLR, the 1.1 to 2.0, mm -hmm. you could use the old tools to build on the old CLR, the new tools to build on the new CLR, but you couldn't make a hybrid solution that targeted both simultaneously. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we're doing that in this version. So we're doing multi-targeting in a big way. Wow. And as I like to say, sometimes we're, people will not give us very much credit for doing it because they think we already did it. Um, in Orcus, it looks like you can multi-target, and you can, but only across a compatible CLR band, right? So now you can do it even across non-compatible CLR bands, and we're trying to make it more future-proof as well so that when uh, CLR 4.1 is deployed, you know, we'll, we won't have to do a major servicing of Visual Studio in order to produce tools that target it and select those tools at the right time. Um, so you may find that this is a recurring theme, right? The idea is that um, we, we need it to be the case that new platform technologies can emerge and with the features that are already in Visual Studio, the team that's producing those platform technologies can deploy their platform without having to do a major servicing of, you know, Visual Studio. Nice. So um, customers, of course, should like this uh, because they can use Visual Studio even if they don't want to adopt the new runtime, you know, for their customers yet. I mean, they may have customers that um, aren't ready to go to CLR4 for whatever reason, and they need to be able to continue building, or they may have some components of their solution that they want to upgrade, but other components they don't, like maybe they're upgrading their server side, but not their client side, or maybe the client side, but not the server side, and they want to be able to have a solution that builds some of each, right? Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's something we're going to be able to do. And that was uh, a major effort, <laughs> This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint, number of server requests? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to Telerik.com slash top performance for details and live demos. It, it doesn't sound like a big deal until you get into the plumbing of what actually has to happen. How do exactly. you tolerate the fact that you're running a, you have a different version of CLR for this assembly? Yeah. Yeah. Different versions of the compiler, different, different language features, maybe um, different things have to be enabled or disabled in, in IntelliSense, right? Um, right. any, any differentiation, you know, that has to happen. And if you say, hey, I want to target this version of the framework, or I want to target that version of the framework, but only the parts that are available in Silverlight, um, you know, we'd like to have tooling support for all those scenarios so that you don't accidentally use things that you're not supposed to use, or that at worst you, you get compile time errors that, t that remind you that, hey, that service isn't available in the framework um, that you're targeting, despite the fact that the IDE happens to be using... See, of course, the IDE is running CLR4. So, you know, it's, it, the IDE can't sort of look at its own CLR to find out what features are available in the right. target CLR anymore, right? 
Um, so there's a, there's a quite a bit of separation that has to happen. Now, this- what's exciting to me about that is the whole mobile story suddenly gets more robust. We, it's always uh, been mobile development was sort of off the side of studio. Well, it, it turns out that some of the systems we're doing in the common project system, for instance, are making it a lot easier to create the appropriate tooling support for um, deploying, you know, Windows Mobile and and on the new Windows Mobile and. And our ability to subset the framework and multi-target in a solution will be super handy, you know, when producing the features um, that are necessary to do targeting in the mobile space. So, I mean, I like to kill more than one bird with one stone sure, uh, sure. when I do architecture in VS. And so it, it's kind of, you shouldn't be surprised that um, these features that were chosen are, are in, enabling a, a variety of different scenarios. Okay, so let me go a step even further. I want a custom version of the framework for my given platform because I'm limited to something, and now I'd be able to easily configure Studio to work within that custom version of the framework. And, and in fact, uh, we would very much like to do those kinds of things as well. Um, I think the question is, how easy is it to specify the version of the framework that you want, your custom version? Right. Um, and, it, and it can be quite tricky because uh, you have to produce the appropriate reference assemblies um, for us, you know, for us to know like what we can call and what we can't, and it has to be a self-consistent set. And so, you know, that'll be that'll be something that we want to continue working on. Um, and you know, I'm not sure I'm not sure that we're going to give you that one in one. Yeah, I don't think so. But but I see a path forward to that. I see a path forward where I build an, I, I construct an app and then say, give me the framework required to run that app and nothing more. Okay, well, but then you have a different problem, right? Um, then the, the question is, how does the customer get that framework, right? right. And, and so the problem then is not just one of tooling, but one of, you know, what frameworks are out there, what ones are easy to get, and how would one plug into them? And, you know, if you, even if you created a tooling subset of the framework that let you, you know, target just pieces, parts of it, um, the parts that you wanted, um, for, maybe for policy reasons, you know, um, um, and um, maybe you don't want to use the network stack as a as a as a policy decision because of the environment you're going to deploy in. So you want to be able to guarantee that you're not using any network components. Great. So you could have tooling that let you not use any of the network components. But then, you know, where are you going to get a version of the framework that doesn't have the network components? That's that's trickier. And for us, um, you can see that we're starting to do different frameworks. You know, with different subsetting, um, but. We can't possibly create every permutation. I mean, it would be a servicing nightmare, and not to mention the confusion it would create for customers. So, you know, we'd like to have the ability to do things like, say, I want to be able to target the XNA pieces, or I want to not be able to target the XNA pieces. Yeah. You know, yes. and and uh, I want that to run on the Silverlight framework, or not on the Silverlight framework, or you see what I'm saying? But um, and even though we, even if we could tool for arbitrary sub pieces, you still have the problem of how do you get such a framework and what what could we possibly, you know, make available without causing causing people's heads to explode? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Sure. But I'm very comfortable with it that I would go too far on that, and I'm glad you're saying yeah, we'll pull you back a bit. Let's keep this a little more rational as to how far we want to go. I like the idea that you, that Microsoft would define the different chunks of framework that we could work in. Yeah, it it would have to be something that was readily understandable. Otherwise, people wouldn't, you know, like how, how would you explain to people what they need to get? You know, yeah, it it would just be super confusing. Do you get a sense that that framework deployment is still a big issue uh, for for folks? Do you mean um, 
Do you mean in terms of like installing it or in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I, I, I mean, mean the whole point of playing with this idea of a more granular chunk of the framework is this idea that n- not everybody has the framework installed in the machine yet. Oh, well, okay, see, it's, it's not so much that. I mean, if you're worried about penetration, okay, depending on which flavor of the framework you want to target, you can probably find one that has, has penetration in the market that's, that's more than satisfying for you. The, the trouble is, like, if you're Visual Studio... You, the framework you want to target is always the one that they don't have, right? Right. Because I'm, I'm going to ship on CLR4, and I can assure you that, you know, the day we ship, no one will have that. Right. Um, because, you know, we're going out on day one, right? Or day zero, if you like. So it's certainly the case that there's no penetration of the framework I want. And, uh, if you're using the very latest framework and coding for that, you know, then you might find yourself thinking, well, what am I going to do on day zero? And when should I code? And what environment? And, you know, so then deployment might be a, a consideration for you to say, well, they have to pick up that that uh, that framework. Um, but in terms of getting the bits to people, um, it's readily available. And um, there's lots of technologies where you can seamlessly sort of integrate it into your thing. I mean, even if you just do click once, you know, I just recently did a click once application for my friends. You know, I, I they need a little gizmo and I wrote this gizmo and, you know, I decided I wanted some features from Framework 3.5 and a bunch of them had Framework 3.5 and a bunch of them didn't. And, you know, so some of them had a bigger download than others. Um, but, um, it's only on the first one, and, you know, it's very proven technology. So uh, generally, people find that experience is pretty good. But I think there's still people um, that would wish that the framework distribution were smaller, you know, more like the Silverlight one maybe. Um, and, um, I mean, I, I guess that that will always be the case, right? Well, whatever we put in it, there will always be people who wish that there were less. Yep. Um, and... You know, and then contrary-wise, there'll always be people who wish that there was more. Um, and I, I think overall, we can't keep putting stuff in the default framework distribution. So, I mean, at some point, you know, it's enough, right? And what are you going to do? Pull down, you know, two gigabytes of framework? I mean, we'll have to find a way to make it so that people can get pieces, parts of the framework in some logical kind of way. And if you, they need a certain add-on, like, you know, I keep coming back to XNA support. If they want XNA support, they can get that in, in a, a, a very straightforward sort of way and have that be deployed in a very, very straightforward kind of way. Now, we're doing things to make that smaller. And, you know, we did a bunch of things in our servicing, and we'll do a bunch more in CLR4. I mean, that's certainly a focus of the of the framework teams. Um, but, the, you know, that's not, that's not my team. So it, it, it's not really appropriate for me to kind of comment on that. Not because, well, because I might not have the details right. Um, but generally, you know, what's interesting if, to me the situation is, is not, it's not bad. Um, and it's always toughest if you're targeting the latest, you know, but a lot of times people want to target the latest precisely because it is the latest and it has, you know, what they need or what they want. You know, for a long time, Microsoft's mantra was very much, we're designing for the next generation of computers. And I don't think that you've gone away from that mantra. That that used to mean we always expect to have more memory and faster processors and those sorts of things. And I've really gotten a sense in Studio 10, and we may be a little off base here, I, I admit, that there's a frugality energy about this, that we need to be more efficient and, and use resources more, more cautiously. Well, <laughs> um, I mean... I used to be the perf guy. Um, I still am, yeah. and so I, I'd like to think that if there's if there's an attitude of frugality around Visual Studio 10, then then um, it's partly because I'm chief architect and not somebody else. 
Um, but also, uh, frugality is is one of the of the sort of cornerstones, if you will. Um, another thing is that it needs to be modern. And so, you know, I, I want it to be the case that we're positioning ourselves well for where our technology trends are going. And right now, um, that means um, more and more customers have GPUs, and so we need to be able to take advantage of those kinds of features. And people are going to have multi-core processors. They already have multi-core processors. They're going to have a lot more cores, so we need to right. be moving our code base in a direction that's going to enable more parallelism. Um, and um, we need to be targeting, you know, a modern machine. Um, and so uh, that doesn't mean like a machine from, you know, 2050. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. it, it means a modern machine. And, Just up to date. And, um, so in some cases we've done, you know, well in the past by, uh, by targeting what's likely to be around the corner. In some cases we've done poorly, and sometimes we've used that as, as an excuse to burn resources that we didn't really need to burn. So it's one thing to say, hey, we want to use WPF. We think that's important. We think a high-quality graphics experience is something that people expect from a modern program. It's an entirely other thing to say, and so therefore we're going to burn multiple gigabytes of texture memory just because we can, um, yeah. and we're going to up the prereq, you know, the required memory, to you know 52 gigabytes so that yeah, we don't have, have a gigabyte video card. Go home. Textures. I mean, I wouldn't stand for that that kind of thing. You know, so it's it's one thing to say, hey, we're going to use those features. It's another thing to say, but we're going to use them judiciously. Um, we're going to find other places to uh, where, where savings are available. You know, maybe some things that we wish we'd done better, or that um, maybe we're good enough five years ago, but now as people's average solution size has increased, um, maybe they need improvement. Um, and so we're looking for places to to save as well as places to expand. And I'm strike, trying to tr- strike a balance there, um, so that. Yes, we're going to add some things, but also we're going to improve some things. Guys, what does proving to be the most challenging new feature to implement, maybe from even from an architectural standpoint, uh, in Visual Studio 10? I wouldn't say that it's any new feature. Um, like, for instance, there's a new editor, okay? And, and it, it, would, it would be fair to say that um, plumbing a new editor you know, into the middle of Visual Studio, and everybody depends on that editor, yeah. is quite difficult. Yeah. Um, and so that's super challenging. But then it would also be super challenging. It would also be true to say that uh, that doing all this multi-targeting is super challenging and it has required many, many people. And um, some of the new extensibility features, those are super challenging. And the new project system is super challenging. And, and WPF improvements we're making in our shells look and feel, well, they're, they're challenging and lots of people depend on those. I mean, you can imagine we have automation suites that expect that the root window has an H wind. Well, guess what? It doesn't anymore, right? Ooh. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Right. So, so that's, you know, that can have an impact. But I wouldn't say that any of those things are the greatest challenge. Um, architecturally, the greatest challenge is that all of this is in flux at the same time. Right. So we have uh, a new shell, a new editor, a new project system. Um, we have multi-targeting and a new framework all in one release. And that is very, very difficult. Right. So what's the most challenging is that there are so many moving parts and um, it makes it difficult to kind of, you know, work on any of them with, with a great deal of confidence. Any one of those initiatives would be fabulous. I mean, I think you're going to love the new editor. And when there are changes, Um, it affects everybody in the chain. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, all of those things that I mentioned affect pretty much everyone. Yeah. I mean, of the ones that I mentioned, the new project system is the least invasive. 
Okay, that, that that's the, that's the low man on the totem pole. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> you know that, that's the bar we're setting. Okay, new project system, entirely new common project system for the C plus plus system. That's the low man. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't even know how to tell you how how uh, pervasive multi targeting is. It's everywhere, right. and it affects not just Visual Studio, but it it affects the framework in profound kinds of ways because they're finding they're gonna they want to build the framework differently, knowing that they want to be able to multi target against it in the future and so how they deliver pieces to us and you know what part ships with the framework and what part ships with visual studio and what part ships separately um all of these things are being affected um and i think you know for the better um another interesting thing is that lots of managed pieces are replacing um unmanaged pieces in this version and so you know we're finding um uh new challenges in, in doing that much com interop and, you know, how does that system hold up? And so we're, we're making improvements in that area as well. I mean, for me, I think it's, it's super important um, because sometimes people wonder about technologies like WPF, you know, like, can I really do that? Is that really for me? And they look and they see, well, other people have built WPF applications and they're like, well, yeah, there's Blend, you know, Blend, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty big application, you know, so I guess you can do stuff with it. But like, where's the flagship applications that are, that are built in WPF? And so when I say Visual Studio is using WPF as its primary display technology, that's, you know, that's a big deal. That's a flagship application. Sure. Um, dependent on WPF, and and um, sure, we're, I'm sure we're going to find some some problems with WPF when when you know down the finish line, and uh, and we're going to fix them, and they'll be fixed for everyone, and um, that means people can be very confident about deploying WPF, and they'll be able to say, hey, look, you can build a flagship application out of WPF, it really works. Here it is. Here's the proof. You know, it's not just medium sized application. It's not just uh, small, um, you know, line of business apps. You can really build anything, um, and uh, I think it's super important that that we prove our technologies out like that. So uh, I, for one, was very excited about taking that dependency, and um, I think, likewise, the WPF team was super excited to rise to that challenge. And um, but definitely, the the integration is much more difficult than any one of the pieces. So uh, Anthony. Hopefully you're still out there somewhere as we've gone deep into this guts of studio. I'm still here. I, I'm just uh, letting Rico preach. It's always great to learn a little <laughs> bit from these interviews, even myself. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it excites me to hear a chief architect with so much passion about making a product Absolutely. we all depend on better. Absolutely. Uh, the You guys just had a conference a little while back in September, the VSX Developer Conference? Uh, we did, yeah. It was our it was our, our first large scale public conference dedicated entirely towards extending Visual Studio. And, uh, we were we were pretty excited. We had uh, we had uh, some really great successes with that event. I'm I'm just trying to who went like of course I immediately think the VSIP crowd goes to this sort of thing, but I get the sense that you're really trying to broaden the reach of who would extend Visual Studio. So I'm I'm interested in the sort of folks that went to it. Yeah, so we certainly, uh, you know, you start with thinking about the VSIP crowd, and they're, they're, of course, there, and they're at a lot of our events. And that was, you know, originally these events started out as being VSIP-focused events. But um, at this event, we saw a larger group of, uh, you know, people who are looking at getting into extending Visual Studio as uh, profitable opportunities and smaller ISVs or new ISVs who are moving into this space. Uh, we saw some enterprise developers who are looking at how they can build uh 
and take advantage of Visual Studio's extensible features to um, manage their development environment in-house and make sure that their developers are more efficient and more productive. Um, we saw a handful of even actually hobbyists and community developers who, who participated in this event. Uh, we even went so far as to see uh, two miners that we had participating in this event, uh, wow. young enough that they couldn't even drive uh, to the event themselves. Wow, that's very cool. And won't be able cool. to for a few more years. Studio is a big ecosystem now. Team system, TFS, that's all. These all need extensions too, right? Yeah, as as Rico mentioned, it's you know a lot of the different features he's talked about so far: the WPF shell, the project system, uh, multi-targeting, the editor. These are some core fundamental pieces of Visual Studio. But um, he also mentioned earlier that you know we need to drive this up the stack into the various teams that are building on top of that core platform. And many of them already today have extensible features, but many of them also have opportun- new opportunities where they can make themselves even more extensible. You know, when you talk about TFS, you're talking about you know potentially creating new uh, test project types that uh, can integrate uh, and, and test other fun- and different types of platforms. You're talking about process templates and integrating new process templates into the team system uh, functionality for starting up new projects and integrating with Team Foundation Server and extending Team Foundation Server to talk to different systems that you might need to bring into your overall development process, uh, be it, you know, some back-end uh, process system that may not be Visual Studio Team System itself, or it could be a different project management system. You have a variety of other interfaces into our product. So there, you know, there's any different number of avenues that we could look at uh, plugging into the, over, the larger Visual Studio Team System product. Yeah, there's just a lot of possibilities there, and it just it sort of speaks to the idea that we are broadening the overall offering, and there are more opportunities uh, than ever before, really. So, Absolutely. meantime, there's also and, this and idea. Growing. You know, as, as we start to introduce new features, uh, we've even done some some internal shuffling around of our teams to make sure that uh, the the extensibility story is really part of our DNA at at the at the core level, and 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 you know, and that's the level that you know Rico's focusing on to make sure that that story is pervasive throughout the product. So there is now going to be a version of Studio itself that's a free version, right? Just the shell. Correct. Yeah, and I think. Uh, and I think uh, it'd be great for Rico to elaborate on this. But I, you know, one of the one of the points that I, I'd love for for folks listening to this to take away is, you know, just thinking about the building blocks of of what we're creating here. The Visual Studio shell is something we introduced in the 2008 version of Visual Studio, and we're going to continue to offer uh, in Visual Studio 2010. It, it gives you the opportunity to just ship a, uh, a a product that extends on just the core shell components, the basic windowing elements that are there and introduce your own basic tooling, either that integrates into Visual Studio itself if it's present, or stands alone as its own independent tool application that you can custom brand for your individual uh, customer segment. Yeah, this can be handy if you're building even something that has absolutely nothing to do with development tools. Um, if you want the plug-in model and you, you want our extensibility model and maybe you want some of our windowing systems or maybe some of our project management systems, even if you choose not to show some of those things to your customers um, in, in the way that you would for a development tool, you know, but to have those facilities there to, uh, to back up your system, um, there's, there's tremendous opportunity for, for building on top of that technology in a bunch of different ways. And I think people continue to ask us to do more and more rich refactoring of that to, so they can ship just the pieces that they want. Um, you know, everyone wants the shell to be smaller, including me, um, and, and to be more uh, sort of a la carte. So I'd love to do work in that direction as well. So after Visual Studio 10, 
Uh, what are some of the things that made your cut list that uh, that are on the top of the list for the next version, if you want to talk about them, or if you can? Um, well, okay. I, I mean, I, it's it's hard for me to tell you what's under the Christmas tree. Um, <laughs> I, I, I got that expression from from uh, from That's a journalist good. in when I was in Denmark, and I thought it was so delightful that I started using it. Um, so I, I can't really tell you specifically. I can I can tell you some things that are fairly obvious. Like I keep talking about the common project system, for instance, and yet it's only there for C plus plus. Well, I think it's pretty clear that we want that to be a project system that's workable for all the different languages, and we didn't think that it was smart to do that in one version. Sixty four bit version of Visual Studio. Now there's a very interesting question. Um, I, Many people have talked to me about 64-bit. Most of the time when people talk to me about 64-bit, what they really want isn't cosmically 64 bits. I mean, you know, it's kind of like would my mom ask for a 64-bit product? I mean, she she doesn't care how many bits it is. She just wants it to be able to do the job, right? Right. We so, just want edit and so continue. The, you know, the real right. thing is um, <laughs> many people want... Um, really big scale. They want to have very large solutions and with lots and lots of projects and lots of systems in them. And so they think that the that the correct way to get to that is by moving the product to 64 bits. And I'm really not of that opinion. I think that the way for us to get more scale is to have better algorithms. Um, I know that uh, there's, there's cases where um, our systems are aggressively loading too much. And if we if we used more lazy algorithms um, and algorithms with better scale, there were system, uh, there were algorithms in the editor and project system that were quadratic in in terms of their complexity, right? And they need to be linear or logarithmic even. And and so, I would much rather take the code base that we have and get the algorithms under control so that we don't use that much memory and we get to scale that way than I would open up Pandora's box and say, oh, now you get you know infinite amounts of memory and sort of reverse the trend on frugality because yeah. it kind of sends the wrong message. Now, okay, now on the other hand, you know, it would be foolish to think that um, we're going to be running on 32-bit operating systems forever. Certainly many of our customers are running 64-bit operating systems today. I am. In fact, yep, but I, I think that maybe for the next little bit, um, the best place to run Visual Studio will be on a 64 as a 32-bit application running on a 64-bit operating system, so that you know we get as much address space as we want. You get resources to do other things, and we keep our nice small pointers. You have to remember, and I've written about this at some some length, that moving to 64 bits isn't like an automatic win. Yeah. In fact, you Trade start us. at a penalty, right? Because sure. the pointers got twice as big. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the magic number is somewhere between 1.2 and 1.4. That, that's that's how much slower you're going to run if you write just the same code um, and in the same space, right? The processor's cache doesn't get bigger. Right. Um, it's the same cache, and the pointers are twice as big, so less fits. So you take a hit. Now, the, the deal is that if you need the space, you'll win that back and more, because, you know, you'll have RAM available to do the job at hand, and right. that will more than pay for the others. Now, on the other hand, if you don't need the space, you know, so so tell me, who's using right now Visual Studio solutions that use more than 4 gig of memory? No, yeah, I, I understand that, because basically, you know, if you're talking about video files or, or audio files or something where the, the data itself is huge, right. it makes a huge difference. We're talking right. about source code here, you know, we're talking well, about... Uh, you know, a couple hundred megs uh, today of right. of memory. 
you know, no, when you're running a typical project. People are using project. more than that with their big solutions. Well, the big and, solution, of course, sure. And the compilers. But in some cases, you could use it's because we're I not doing such that. a great job being frugal. And I'd really rather say, you know what, we shouldn't be using that much memory. Yeah. Um, that's the problem. The problem isn't that we can't address more memory. The problem is that we're using too much. Yeah. Um, at the same time, there are cases, like, for instance, um, uh, some database access cases, where you really want to be able to manipulate large amounts of data in Visual Studio sure. itself. And so I would really like Especially it to be the case way. that people can create 64-bit packages and plug them in directly. Um, there's some, uh, well, there's a variety of integration cases where, you know, you just like to be able to provide um, not the whole thing, but have parts of it run in a 64-bit process and seamlessly interoperate. And I think we can do that. And I think that would give us the best of both worlds. Because the other problem with going to 64-bit is that, of course, we have mountains of code to port, right? Yeah. Not all the product is managed. And even the managed parts, we'd have to look and say, well, how are they impacted by a pointer increase? And did we serialize everything properly? And yada, yada. So there's a porting cost. Can we at least get edit and continue with 64-bit? So that's a whole that's a whole different kettle of fish, right? <laughs> um, and that's a that's a question for the debugger team and and the framework team because um, sure. I think we're in principle, um, you know, we we could tool for it. It's a question of what support do we have and which of the systems. Uh, and that doesn't really have anything to do with whether we run on sixty four bit sure, or not. Sure, I understand. So um, so um, I don't know whether they did that this time or not. Um, I'm the wrong person to ask. Hey, as long as I got your ear, I have a request. Okay. And that is when you add a reference, what I would like to see is a, another menu, right-click menu option below that for each of the different types of references, project versus .NET versus browse, instead of waiting for a number of X minutes while everything no. populates. <laughs> you don't want to populate the thing. But you see, you're, you're, spe you're speaking music to my ears, my friend, because Rico's answer to that is that stuff should be lazily populated. We shouldn't be like you know, um, not like fetching them all to put in the list before. Yeah, especially we show you when anything. I want to just add a project, you know. Now I have to wait for all the com components. Yeah, you shouldn't have to do that. And 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 you know, my advice would be um, the, what I would push for is to say it has to be asynchronous. It has to be interruptible. Uh, if the guy doesn't like the tab he's on, he should be able to switch tabs without waiting for the thing, and he shouldn't care that we were in the middle of enumerating the one or the other. Right. I mean, the idea that you want to short-circuit this, right, yeah. to go to the one you want to prevent us from being stupid, right. I would not want to be stupid in the first place. I, I think it's a, a mistake to, you know, put that thing up uh, for yeah. these long-running operations. And in some cases, there's not especially a good reason for it to happen. It's just, you know, the code was written the way it was. It was sure. a comparatively straightforward way to write the code. It seems and, like a fairly you know, easy thing to... Yeah, and yeah. so, you know... When when you're faced with a, a development schedule and time, you're like, well, okay, do I make every dialogue be asynchronous, or do I, you know, which ones do I do, and which ones are the most important? Anyway, sure. um, that one, uh, that's a dialogue who's like, if it had a nose, I, I would punch <laughs> it in the nose, um, you know, and and frequently. So so you can you can count on full on my full endorsement for uh, awesome for improving that particular dialogue, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Sure. You know, I sure. like to tell people I'm, I'm the chief architect, but I'm only the chief architect, right? I, I don't, right. I mean, I can't make all the product decisions and resourcing and all that stuff. I mean, holy mackerel, yeah. uh, it's hard enough just to, to give people an idea of where we should be going and what the technical roadmap should be. Um, by the time you consider, well, who's available to do what work and what's competing with and what other initiatives are there, and oh my goodness, you know, 
um, it can be very, very difficult to make those those kinds of decisions. But um, but you know, I'm certainly in your camp in terms of of that particular dialogue needing some help. So we're just about down to the end of the show here. Is there any last minute things you want to say or shout outs or or calls to action? Yeah, I think uh, there's probably two that come to mind. I think one is, you know, for those who've been listening to all this and and want to to get a sense of where do you start to find these extensions that we've talked about that are already there and the new ones that will be coming out, um, you know, there's there's one place that we've been investing a lot of energy to build up, and and that's the Visual Studio Gallery for for finding the existing extensions that are out there that um, are either free or free trials or even some of them are are for pay um, that you can use to start to build up your development environment. Excellent. I'll be writing about um, Visual Studio Futures probably from now until whenever I stop doing this job on my blog. It's, it's blogs.msdn.com slash ricom, R-I-C-O-M. And uh, I've written some interesting articles that are kind of, you know, um, they go into some of the things we talked about today at, at greater length, and there's other good references. So, um, you know, have a visit there. That's a good. That's a good place to kind of get plugged in. Excellent. Rico Mariani and Anthony Cangiolosi, thank you very much for joining us here. And thanks for your continued excellent work with this fabulous product, with, with, without which we wouldn't be here today. Let's face it. Thank, thank you very much for having us. You bet. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on Dodger Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got to transmit a band.